All right, so hopefully um, you're not completely throwing us overboard. So I would greatly appreciate it if that would be the case. Okay. All right, so um, so uh, one more thing before we begin. I just wanted to kind of put this out there. You know, this is the second Wednesday that we're all back together, and this is kind of normal. Um, I know with a lot of the COVID stuff, it, it hits you guys probably least than anybody else among the entire population of the world. Um, but one of the things just to keep in mind as we move forward, because we've got, like, this was a big turning point. The next turning point is going to be the Sunday right before Thanksgiving. We're going to go back to one service. Um, and then we've got Sunday school that's going to start up hopefully at the end of January right after winter camp is over. Um, but just one thing to keep in mind of, of, you know, just making sure that you're being careful for people around you. There's a lot of people that have varying opinions. And there's people that are more vulnerable. And it's just one of those things where if we're going to care for people, sometimes we have to put aside our personal views on these sorts of things, especially if we hold a certain side a little bit more strongly than others, in order to care for other people. Um, you know, Pastor Tom's done a really good job um, just at this in general because he has very strong feelings about pretty much everything in general. But, um, but he's really put a lot of his personal feelings aside in order to care for the rest of our church. And so among the youth at our church, it can be very easily just disrespectful Regarded. And so I just want you guys just to keep that in mind um, as we move forward, just to be caring for one another, especially those that are older. Um, when I was younger, I used to love hanging out with old people and talking with them. Um, and so I'm, I'm just extra cautious with older people at our church. Well, I'll ask them, you know, hey, can I shake your hand? Or, hey, can I give you a hug? Or, hey, you know, just to be respectful, even though I know they probably don't care. Little things like that just go a long way. So uh, just make sure you guys are doing that. Okay, so we are continuing how to study the Bible. We're going to be talking about the, the consistency factor. I think this one's really amazing. There are so many things with this one. This is where it starts to get into a much more of the deeper things of God. Um, but I love this one uh, very much. And, uh, and there's good reason for it. And it's really another thing that just blows my mind when it comes to the scriptures. It really proves the fact that the Bible is most certainly God's book and that he wrote it. So when approaching the Bible... You must pay attention to the consistency of God. And uh, does anybody else not have a study sheet and they need one? Okay. All right. So Carson needs one as well. If you can take care of that, Brandy. Thank you. Anybody else while Brandy's passing it out? Gibson needed one. Even though he was like here before anybody else. <laughs> Major fail. Whatever. All right. So when approaching the Bible, you must pay attention to the consistency of God. And you may not understand what I mean by that. But you will by the time that we're done, especially before we hit some of the examples. So here's our three verses. Malachi 3.6, Hebrews 13.8, James 1.17. Malachi 3.6, For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Hebrews 13, Jesus Christ the same yesterday and today and forever. And James 1.17, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. God does not change. And we'll talk about that because how he does things can change in the Bible, and they do change, especially when we're looking at different dispensations and how he governs at a certain time in human history. But God's nature does not change. And so we'll talk about that. So God's consistency in the law of first mention. So God is holy, he is perfect, and he is without error. We know that. We've talked about that almost every single week that we've been going through how to study the Bible. God may change how he deals with mankind from dispensation to dispensation, 
but His nature and His truth is eternally consistent. Once God's truth is established, it will never deviate to the right or to the left. In the same way, the first time something is mentioned in the Bible, it will establish a truth or a pattern that is consistently found throughout the rest of the Bible. And this is what is uh, referred to as the law of first mention. So God is consistent. Uh, you may have heard it said, I think I've said it before, but when you're studying the Bible, you can read from Genesis 1 through Genesis 12. And once you go past chapter 12, there's really nothing new that God reveals in the Bible. Everything that is foundational, spiritual, doctrinal truths, God establishes them and lays them out from Genesis 1 to Genesis 12. From that point forward in the Bible, he goes deeper into those same principles. But it's really neat. And when you study the Bible as a whole, you find out that uh, in Genesis 1, you know, God has this garden where he puts man to dress in to keep it. And then you read all the way through and you get to the last chapter of Revelation. And here you have the exact same thing again. So God is in the process of bringing everything full circle and how he has his creation in a garden where they are honoring him and blessing him and glorifying him. And so everything that God does in between Genesis 13 to the end of of the scripture is just a deeper revelation of a truth that he's already established. Now, this consistency of God is so powerful that it undoubtedly proves God's existence. Because think about it. If God is a liar, then God cannot be God. If God is not consistent, then there's no way that he can be God. So his consistency proves the fact that he's true. And if he is that way, then his word is that way. Uh, But it's the same thing. I was thinking about this just in the concept of consistency. You know, there's a lot of people that will try out God. Or they'll try out, like, I know I'm supposed to read the Bible, and so I'm going to give it a shot. Or I know I'm supposed to memorize, so I'll give it a shot. I know I'm supposed to do discipleship, so I'll give it a shot. But you really don't see the benefits of those things until you are consistently doing them with the Lord. And it's the same with anything else. Like, when it comes to, you know, in a marriage relationship between a husband and a wife, love is proven over the consistency of how they express that love through time. And it's the same thing when it comes to exercise. You don't go to the gym and exercise and come home and say, yeah, that did me some good today. Like, it just it doesn't work. Over time, you start to see the benefits. Same thing with eating. Same thing with, with, a lot, with money, investing money. It's the exact same thing. And there's a lot of people that just don't give God the consistency um, in their lives because God is consistent with us if we're willing to be consistent with Him, and you can start to see the same benefits. So I love that about God. God's consistency and how consistent He is proves that He is, in fact, true. So I love that. All right. So let's take a look at some examples. So some examples of um, just the law of first mention. And we can see God's consistency throughout the scriptures. So go to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. This is a very simple one just to get us started off with this concept. But it's the word day. It's the word day. So there's a lot of people when it comes to Genesis uh, chapter 1, they, they don't think that um, day is referring to a literal 24 hours. Um, they think that it's referring to many other things. There's a lot of people that don't really believe the Bible, and therefore they end up uh, applying things metaphorically. And so they believe in like theistic evolution, which, I don't know, do they teach that in your guys' school in science class, theistic evolution? 
at least no, the concept of it. Just normal evolution. Okay. So the the idea is that theistic evolution would be that God basically created the process of evolution. So the Roman Catholic Church would actually hold to that. So the Pope would believe in evolution because he can't argue against the science per se. He's just a coward and doesn't want to fight it. But anyway, um, and so in order to agree these two things together, he says, well, God must exist. And we can see clearly from science that evolution is true, which is, that's just a false, I mean, that's a false statement anyway. But in order to marry those two together, then God must have created the process of evolution. That's what they, that's what they say. So that's oversimplified. That's theistic evolution. So there's a lot of people that will read Genesis and they'll say that day is not referring to a literal 24-hour 24 um, 24 day. And so the first mention of the word day is in chapter 1 in verse 5. And it says, And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. So the first thing that I notice here is that day is what? What do you notice about day? It is capitalized. It is a proper noun. Every other time day is used in verse 13, 19, 23, 31, it is not capitalized. And even in those verses, like take a look at verse 8, it says, And God called the firmament heaven, and the evening and the morning were the second day. He says the same thing in verse, uh, in verse 13. Um, the evening and the morning were the third day. And in verse 19, the evening and the morning were the fourth day. So after that, in verses 9, 13, 19, it says that evening and the morning were a day. So a literal 24-hour day. So that's how we know that the account of Genesis is actually literally 24 hours is because the Bible says evening and morning. And that's how the Jews used to measure their day. We normally do morning, evening for our days. But according to the Jewish culture, they always measure a day from evening to morning. So every single day, the new day would be 6 p.m. starting that evening. And then it would continue until the following 6, um, 6 p.m. the next day. But here, what's interesting is that the first time the day is used, it's capitalized. And I think that's interesting. So the first time it shows up, it's a, it's a proper noun. But then the second, third, fourth, fifth, it's lowercase referring to a 24-hour day. So there's something unique about that. And with it being a proper noun, and you can study this out later, I definitely think it's in reference to Jesus Christ for sure. Uh, but there are other things that it could be re referencing. But anytime that you see the day, Jesus Christ is called the day star uh, in 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, there's things like that that really refer to that. So when you study out day, like we talked about with creation, the creation factor, you can study a lot about Jesus Christ being the Son, things we talked about like that. So that's one example. So the law first mentioned, day. Here's another one. We're already in Genesis. Jump over to chapter 3. Chapter 3. The serpent and his attack. So the devil shows up for the first time. Uh, he only shows up a handful of times personally in Scripture, but every time God is faithful to reveal him as he is. And God calls him here the serpent. And the first thing that we see him doing here is in verses 1 through 5. In verse 1 it says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? So the first thing that you see him doing is that he's questioning God's word. He's questioning what God actually said. Now they knew what God said, because if you go back to chapter 2, God gave Adam strict instructions. And if you take a look at verse 16, it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. So the first time the serpent or the devil shows up in Scripture, he's questioning God's word. Yea, hath God said, did he actually say, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? 
And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, which God did not say. So she added to God's words in that circumstance. And then verse 4, And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. So he questions it first. Did God actually say that? And then he trips her up. She ends up adding to God's words. And then he flat out just contradicts the word of God. He's like, you're not going to die. When God clearly said, in the day ye eat thereof, ye shall surely die. And God is not a liar. So you see the serpent contradicting the word of God. And then in verse 5, he changes it. For God doth know that in a day ye eat thereof, and your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. So this is his plan, and he does this all the time. If he can get someone to question what God actually said, and then he can start to introduce a seed of doubt, and then contradict what God has said, then he can very easily change what God has said and make someone believe something contrary to what God has already established. And then if you notice the result of this in verse 6, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were open, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves aprons, and then they hid themselves from the voice of the Lord God. In verse 8. Now here's something that's interesting. Go to 1 John chapter 2. Hold your spot there in Genesis. Go to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. First John. All right, and so I'm going to read 16 and 17. First John 2, 16 and 17. Who wants it? Ethan. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Okay, so according to verse 16, what are the three things that he lists there? Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life. Okay, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. This has always been the tactic of the devil. This is what he does. So in the first place you see the devil showing up, he's questioning the Word of God, he contradicts the Word of God, and he changes the Word of God in order to get people to then lust after their flesh, lust after their eyes, and to have the pride of life to disobey God. Because if you go back to Genesis, and you flip back and forth, because I'm just holding them both open. I got 1 John 2 over here, verse 16, and I got Genesis 3 open over here. And the woman saw that the tree was good for food. Which one of those three is that? Lust of the flesh. Okay. Pleasant to the eyes. Lust of the eyes. And a tree to be desired to make one wise. The pride of life. So right out of the gate, the first time you see the serpent mentioned, he does these three things by making people question God's word, contradict it, and then change it. And if you get people to believe in something else other than God's word, then it's going to appeal to the lust of their flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, and it's going to destroy them. And God says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. So, 
these three things that happened to Eve are the same three things that are going to happen to us. Every single sin issue that you and I have, it can always come back down to these three things. Every time we comply with whatever sinful behavior might be, it's always going to fall into one of these three categories. And it's because we're not willing to believe what God has said, we're willing to believe a lie instead. And that's why Jesus said in John 8, 44, when talking to the Pharisees, Ye of your father, the devil, and the lusts of your father, those three things, ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. And that's what you see him doing for the very first time in Genesis chapter 3. So the first time the serpent is mentioned, it is always in a negative context. It's always associated with a plan that works on you and I every single time. And so you have to be aware of that. You've got to. And so that's something important for us to understand. And God establishes that right out of the gate with Genesis chapter 3. So on your guys' study sheet, the serpent is consistently associated with sin and the devil. And the devil's main attack, his main attack is always against God and his words. If he can get you out of your Bible, then the next logical step is that he can get you into sin. If you're not going to want to believe what God has to say, then the only thing left for you is the world and your own flesh and your own lust, and that's it. It's over. Game over. You're going to be slaughtered by your own corrupt nature. So that's important for us to know about ourselves. And then even speaking in Matthew chapter 4, I have that reference on there. So Matthew chapter 4 is when Jesus was tempted. He was out in the wilderness. He was hungered. He, he didn't eat anything or drink anything for 40 days. The devil shows up and he tempts him with the same three things. Turn this rock into bread, lust of the flesh. I will give you all the kingdoms of this world. It could be the pride of life. Throw yourself down and show everybody that you're God. Because the angels will catch you before you even fall. And he uses scripture for that one. I mean, lust of the eyes. Same three things he used on Jesus. And so that's his plan. And it works. And that's why he keeps using it over and over and over again. So God establishes that. It's a consistent theme throughout the scriptures with the serpent and his attack and what he does. All right, go to Genesis 22. Genesis 22. The first mention of the word love. And a lot of these are very easy to find. I mean, if you just take open your Blue Letter Bible app and you just search for a word and you find the first place that it's mentioned, you study the context and you'll be able to find what God wants you to know about that particular passage and about that concept. So Genesis 22. And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and, and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here am I. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest. So that's the first mention of any of the form of the word love in the Bible. And get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. What's really interesting is when you study out the land of Moriah, and you cross-reference verse 2 with Second Chronicles 3 and verse 1, um, it is very likely that that is the exact same place where Jesus was crucified. So now you have Abraham taking his only son, Isaac, whom he loves, to the place where later Jesus was going to be crucified, and he offers his only son as an offering. And what I love about this concept is that the first time that it's mentioned, 
about love, true love, it's always associated with an unconditional and a sacrificial sacrifice. Because this whole picture of Abraham sacrificing his only son because God told him to do it, it's associated with that. That would have been huge. That would have been so difficult. I mean, you think about Abraham. God promised Abraham a son in his old age. And he, he even laughed. Sarah laughed. They're like, there's no way. We're too old. There's no way. We're way past childbearing years. There's no way that we're going to have a son. And God said, no, you will. You will have a son. And he didn't believe God. He listened to Sarah. And Sarah gave her handmaid unto Abraham. And then that's where Ishmael was born. He became the firstborn. And then there's that whole mess that unfolded there. But he didn't trust God. He didn't believe God. And so then Ishmael came onto the scene. But God said, no. Ishmael is not through whom my seed is going to go. It is going to be with the promised seed. I promised you a son. I love that concept. Not what you've done according to your flesh in order to make it happen, but what I have promised you through him is going to come, your seed from which I'm going to make many, many nations, the nation of Israel. And so you have that concept introduced here. And now God is saying, go and kill him. You've rejected your other son. He's now cast out, he and his mom, and now this is the promised seed and I'm asking you to kill him. It's a perfect picture of what's going to happen in the future with Jesus Christ. And so for him to obey God, he had, I mean, this was a great moment of sacrifice for him and he loved him. So it's always associated with unconditional and sacrificial sacrifice. So love is not what we typically think. It's not some sort of an infatuation or some sort of a, the butterflies in the tummy. <laughs> it's not it at all. It comes with great sacrifice. And sometimes because we love God, we have to sacrifice many things in our life. But you take a look at John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, his only son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And my goodness, I love 2 Corinthians 5.19. It says that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. So the first time love shows up in the Bible is a very, very powerful. And it's a beautiful, beautiful picture of Jesus Christ when he was going to do. And then in that same context, just down a few verses, you got verse 5. It's the first mention of the word worship in the Bible. So look at verse 5. It says, And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again unto you. Now that's interesting because he says, I and the lad, we're going to go and we're going to come back. So obviously, and we know this from studying scripture later on, that Abraham believed that God was going to raise up Isaac from the dead because God promised him his son. So if God's going to have me sacrifice him, God will obviously bring him back from the dead. He's going to have to because he promised this boy to me and through him was going to come the whole nation of Israel. And so he has to make that happen. But this concept, the island will go yonder and worship Again, sacrifice is associated with worship, and it's close with love. And so the first mention of worship shows up. It's not just about singing songs, feeling good. True worship will always involve sacrifice. Always. It always involves sacrifice. And that sacrifice will include a life-changing encounter with God where you just cannot be the same any longer. You just can't. And so if we're going to truly worship God in our life, it means that we're going to have to let go something that we hold dear in order to follow the Lord. We're going to have to. That's why Jesus mentioned in some of these verses. I'll have you guys look them up. Let's do Matthew 10, 37, 38. Who wants that one? All right, Sam, you got that one. Gavin, take Luke 14, 26. Um, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15. And 2 Corinthians 8, 5. Who wants that one? All right, Emily.
All right, whenever you're good. Go ahead, Sam. Okay. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and falleth after me is not worthy of me. Okay, so in that context, and this is hard, and I think for a lot of you guys, many of you have not come to this point yet in your life. But you may have to, and many of you will. Well, you're going to have to choose God or my family. Some of you have come to that spot. Some of you haven't. Some of you think you have when you actually haven't. But if there comes a point in your life where you're put in a position where am I going to be obedient to God? And am I going to please God? Or am I going to make my mom and dad happy? I mean, that is not an easy decision to make. It's not. I remember, and I shared this when I was preaching a few Sundays ago, that with my parents, I had to come to a spot where it didn't matter what my parents did. I wanted to do what God wanted me to do. And this is a very hard thing. It was a very hard thing for me because I always were able to lean on my parents for spiritual matters. I told Lily a few days ago, we were, I think it was actually last week, we were chatting, and I told her, I said, I am not a Christian. I am not born again because of my mom and dad. And when the day comes where you choose to follow the Lord, it's not because of me and your mom. It is a personal, in, in, a personal decision that you make between you and God alone. And it has nothing to do with your mom and dad. And that is absolutely true. Because there may come a day where your mom and dad, who you think are spiritual, might completely walk away. And then what? So this whole concept of worship is a very personal, very deep, sacrificial decision that changes your life forever. Luke 14, 26. If any man come to me and hate, my, hate, hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Okay, so hate is to build that contrast, to paint that picture, but... If you come to the Lord and you want to follow the Lord and you're not willing to refuse and say, no, I'm not doing this because of my mom, because of my dad, because of my wife, because of my kids, because of my own life, then you can't be his disciple. This is a huge decision, but that's what it means to worship. So, like, even what I want for my life can't matter anymore. This is a very hard concept for you guys to, to really get your minds and hearts around. Because a lot of you guys have the mindset of, well, some of you, because some of you are just freaking out about what you're going to do with your future. But some of you might like, what, what, what am I supposed to do? Or I want to do this with my life. Or I want to experience that with my life. Or I want to do this. I want to do this. I, 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 I. Okay, hold on a second. But what does God want for you? Like, what does God want you to do? And I know you've heard that before, but it is absolutely true. And I needed to... Like, even if what I wanted was good in my life, even if what I wanted, I believe, was going to be honoring to God, I needed to put that out there and say, all right, God, heart-to-heart -heart time between me and you, this is what I want. And I honestly believe that I think this is what you want for me. But it's not about what I want. It's about what you want. So if you don't want this for me, then make that clear and take it away. Shut that door because I don't want that. I mean, I want that, but I don't want that if that's not what you want for me. And that is hard. That is hard. That's hard when it comes to, like, for me, it was, I mean, honestly, I came to the spot where I really believe God wanted me to be in ministry, but I had to put that out there. I had to put that on the altar and say, all right, God, if you don't want me to do this, 
then don't open up the door. I had to do that about my wife. God, if you don't, if you don't want her for me, then take it away. Now, I don't want that. I love her dearly. But if that's not what you want for me, then take it away. I mean, whatever it is, and God will bring you to these moments where it's really, it makes you count the cost and say, okay, do I really trust God? Am I, do I really belong to God? Do I really, am I really a part of his family? That's what it means to worship. And we'll skip the other two verses because we just don't have time. Sorry, guys. But those of you who looked them up, hopefully you read them in there. Fantabulous. I know they are. <laughs> but that's what Abraham had to do. He had to put that out there for the Lord to take if God wanted him to, and he was willing to trust him. All right, go to Genesis 10. Genesis 10. Babylon. Babel. I love this one. This is so cool. All right, so if you spend any time in the Bible, you'll find out that Babel or Babylon is bad, super bad, evil. It's not good. And so what you find here, especially when God's talking about Babylon or Babel in Revelation and it being associated with the mother of harlots and God really using some very strong language and then equating her to Jezebel and you read about the life of Jezebel and how super wicked she was. I mean, totally super villain level. So you find out where's the first place that shows up in the Bible. So Genesis 10.10. So Genesis 10.10, back it up a little bit. You got verse 8. And Cush begat Nimrod, and he began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore, it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Eric, and Akkad, and Kalna, in the land of Shinar. Anytime in the Bible that you find Babel, Babylon, Shinar, and even the word hunter, it is always in a negative context. Always. And so we know that Nimrod was a bad dude just because of that association that you study out throughout Scripture. But then in chapter 11, we found out more about Babylon and the Tower of Babel. And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar. There it is. And they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them throughly. And they had brick for stone and slime had they for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. And let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language, and this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained. This is interesting. And now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. So God's result, go to, let us go down. The Trinity, let us go down and there confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth and they left off to build the city. Therefore, the name of it is called Babel because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth. And from thence, the Lord scattered them abroad upon the face of all the earth. So there's several things just at a very high level. Because remember, if you're reading all the way through from Genesis 1 all the way through, what did God tell Adam? What was part of the command for Adam? Be fruitful and multiply and and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion. Okay? So there's that. What did he tell Noah in Genesis chapter 9? Be fruitful and multiply. That's what he told him there too. 
So now you have a scenario, just two chapters later, where you have the whole earth, so they multiplied. The whole earth was of one language, one speech, and they said, let us build this city, let us build this tower. So we're going to build an economy, and we're going to establish a religion, because this tower whose top may reach unto heaven. So the whole goal of this tower was to reach heaven, to reach God's dwelling place without God. And then you find out at the very end, this is how you know it's negative, because when God shows up and he gives them all different languages, what do they do? They scatter. They scatter, which is what God always wanted from the very beginning. He wanted them to be fruitful and multiply. And once they multiplied, they were not supposed to come together and continue to build their kingdom. They were supposed to spread abroad across, across the face of the earth. That's what he desired. That's what he wanted. They refused to do that. So in their rebellion, they said, nope, we're not going to be obedient to God and we know what he's told us to do because we know our fathers, Noah, and we know what God told Adam. We know them. We have the testimony. It's not been that long since those guys were even around. And so we know what God's told us to do. We're not going to do it. We're going to build our own city. We're not going to be worried about God and what he wants to build. We want to build our own city. And we're going to build our own tower whose top may reach unto heaven. And then God said that nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Which means that they had the ability from the tower to get to the third heaven where God's throne is. Think about that. Now, I have my own theories, but I believe God. So despite my theories, whatever they may be, whether it's by a transportation, you know, or they're just zapped up, or whether they have spaceships that actually came down and took them to the third heaven, it's another lesson for another day. <laughs> but whatever it is, we know that it's not going to be a tower that literally goes there because if you think about the earth spinning, that's not going to work because if you build the tower and it goes all the way out, then you're going to be on the platform and it's going to be raging at some crazy speed and then it's going to hit mercury and everything. It's, not going to, it's just not going to work. It's just not going to work, right? So there's something about this platform, this tower, that they have the ability to actually get to where God's throne is without being right with God whatsoever. So it's very interesting to think about. But God said they would have the ability to do it. So we need to go down and confound their language, spread them abroad, which is what I told them to do originally. And so now you have this whole concept that Babel, Babylon, Nimrod, Hunter, Shinar is associated with a people coming together and unifying as one in rebellion against God to do their own thing and their own agenda in the face of God. And that's the consistent theme throughout the scriptures. And that's why, honestly, when you read in Revelation, that you have John who actually sees Babylon taking on the name of God and the name of Jesus, and it looks like it's Christianity, and he's in shock. He's in absolute awe because he can't believe it. He can't believe it that Babylon has now adopted Jesus and the Bible and God and Christianity and then created this crazy beast that does what Genesis chapter 11 actually does. All right, so that's the first time it's mentioned. It's really cool. It's really, really cool. So the first mention of Babel involves false religion. All right, so we're going to quickly go through this next point because this is really neat too. So this deals with numerology. So when you study out numerology in the Bible, you find out that God's numbers are all over the place and uh, certain numbers mean certain things. Now, 
Um, there are certain times where it doesn't. Um, it's not as consistent as what you would think it would be with other terms in the Bible, but it is interesting how often this is so true in the Bible. So the number three in the Bible, we talked about this with Romans 1.20, with rule number seven, that's the creation factor, that three represents the structure of the universe. So there are threes in everything when it comes to creation, uh, because God created everything after the pattern of himself, the Trinity. And so we see that in Romans 1.20, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. Uh, even his eternal Godhead and power and Godhead. Uh, the number five in the Bible, the first time it shows up is Genesis 5, 5. Shocker. I think that's interesting. So Genesis chapter 5, verse 5. And it's always associated with death, the grave, beast, Satan, the devil. In the book of 2 Samuel, men were killed when they were struck under the fifth rib. Um, that shows up a lot in the Old Testament. Acts 5.5, 5, the fifth book in the New Testament, as a side note, Ananias is killed by God for holding back from the offerings. So those are just a few patterns that you see in Scripture. The number six in the Bible uh, shows up in the first time is, is in Genesis 1.31, where Adam was created on the sixth day. Revelation 13.18 mentions the number of the Antichrist. So six is the number of man. Six is the number of man, and God emphasizes this in the Bible. Uh, seven, first mention is in Genesis 2. God is finished with his creation. He rests on the seventh day. Seven is God's number for completion. And that's why there's 7,000 years of human history. And then God is going to be done with everything once and for all. I'm going to bring it back full circle the way it was in Genesis chapter 1. Uh, eight in the Bible. Eight is the number representing new beginnings. And of course, this makes sense because seven is the number of completion. So the next number would be a new beginning. And 2 Peter 2.5 and 1 Peter 3.20 talks about Noah. Uh, 2 Peter 2.5 talks about how Noah is the eighth. And then 1 Peter 3.20 talks about he and his family, that there are eight people uh, that God started over with after the flood. And of course, that's found in Genesis chapter 8. I'm sure that's just a coincidence. And then Luke 2.21 in the Bible, male babies are instructed to be circumcised on the eighth day uh, because their white blood cell count is the highest at that point. And God just, just so happened to do that. No big deal. And then number nine in the Bible shows up Genesis 9, ironically. Nine seems to be a number that God uses related to fruit bearing. And in Galatians 5, through 23, there are nine characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit. A lot of other Bible translations will say fruits of the Spirit. But when you look in your King James Bible, it actually says fruit of the Spirit because they're all encompassing. Once you have the Spirit, you have the fruit of it. And there are nine aspects of it. Uh, it's very similar to... Um, Oh, what's that fruit that we like, Megan? I forget. The one that's the pomegranate. It's like a pomegranate. You know, when you bust open a pomegranate, there's multiple seeds inside the fruit of the pomegranate. I know, they're fantabulous. I love it. So that's number nine in the Bible. Number ten in the Bible. Uh, it first shows up in Genesis 10.10 10 with the first Gentile kingdom, Babel. Ten is a number that represents Gentiles or non-Jews. In the last days, Daniel 2 and Revelation 17 mentioned 10 Gentile kings that rule the earth. Um, coincidentally, in John chapter 10, Jesus speaks of himself as the shepherd of the sheep of Israel and how there are other sheep, Gentiles, that must be brought into the fold. And then there will be one flock. And then in Romans 10, Paul discusses how Jews and Gentiles can be born again during the dispensation of grace or the church age. So it's interesting where 10 shows up in the Bible. 12 is a no-brainer. Um, in Genesis 12, the first Jew, Abraham, is called out. 12 is the number associated with the nation of Israel and the Jews all over the place. Uh, Exodus 12, Israel comes out of Egypt for the first time as a nation. 
Revelation 7, 4 through 8, 12 is everywhere in this chapter as the, in the list of faithful tribulation period Jews. So it's all over the place. So 12 is without a doubt representative of the nation of Israel and the Jewish people. 13, ominous 13. This seems to indicate rebellion or just basically sinful things in general. Um, I mean, you can look this up. It's very interesting. Genesis 13, 13, Exodus 13, 13, Proverbs 13, 13. It's just bad. It's all bad. <laughs> and then the number 40 in the Bible, first mentioned is Genesis 7, verse 4. Uh, 40 is, is a number related to the time of testing. So the nation of Israel wandered in the desert for 40 years. Jesus was out in the desert for 40 years before he was tempted, or 40 years, 40 days, <laughs> 40 years. Yeah, you didn't know that, did you? Um, 40 days when he was tempted by the devil. Um, and you see it all over the place in Scripture. Uh, Solomon's reign was 40 years. David's reign was 40 years. It's all over. So it's very interesting, very interesting. So as you study the Bible, you just can't be ignorant of the, of the consistent patterns that God has established. God is very consistent with his words and his concepts on purpose. It's his book. So when seeking to understand or clarifying an issue in the Bible, always be sure to check the first time the word or subject is mentioned. That's a great rule of thumb. God brings great clarity with first mentions. So there's that. So that's the consistency of God. It's very interesting. And now that you know this, you're going to start reading stuff. Like I know for me, every time the number three pops up in the Bible, it just it draws my mind to this whole point that God is consistent. And so many times, three in the Bible is always a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ or something with the, with the Trinity or the Godhead. It's really, really amazing. All right, so that's it. Okay, so now we're going to end and we're going to go into the sanctuary. Um, one of the things that Pastor Tom mentioned as well is that uh, we can go in there right at 7.30. So it doesn't matter if Corey's still teaching. Just bust in and interrupt. And if you're afraid to do that, you can wait for one of the leaders to do it. Think I'm afraid? But he's supposed to be done at 7.30. So. I know, Corey. So that's what we'll do. All right, so let's pray really quick. Isaac, why don't you close it? Um, you bet. <laughs> Dearly Father, I thank you for this day and just for letting everyone come out on Wednesday. And um, I pray for the upcoming outreach ministry and the Bible study that we can all be inviting our friends to that uh, because it's really just based on bringing guests in and um, just uh, giving them opportunities to hear the gospel they wouldn't have had before. And uh, I pray for the rest of tonight, then when we go to prayer meeting, that we can just have a good time of fellowship. And um, just lay anything that's on our hearts to you, Lord. And uh, just say amen. Amen. All right, go ahead and head down there and bust in. But quietly.